You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 40, for April 26th, 2009. Warning, this episode contains mature language and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lester, the creator and head author of Metamore City. And here we are, ladies and gents, the penultimate episode of Metamore City Season 1. It's all come down to this, folks, and I'm not going to keep you in suspense a moment longer than I have to. Here is Chapter 30 of Making the Cut, and here to introduce it is the Grand Dame of Podcasting herself, the mighty Mer Lafferty. Hi, this is Mer Lafferty, author of Playing for Keeps, The Takeover, and the soon-to-be-released Heaven Season 5 War. You can find out more about me at merverse.com. And here is your info for Episode 40. Miriam Bakhtavar has fallen. Through a combination of Daniel's combat skills, Brian's electromagnetic powers, and Fiona's inhuman speed and strength, our heroes defeated the former elder and the vampire thug sent to assist her in capturing them. The pivotal moment came when Miriam caught Fiona and began to feed on her, which distracted Miriam enough for Daniel to strike. In a daring move perfected by his years as a champion skyball player, Daniel hung Miriam by the neck from the gantry crane above the warehouse, immobilizing her long enough for Fiona to drive a stake into her heart. Shaken by the cost of their victory, three friends carried their fallen elder out of the warehouse and toward the safety of home. Meanwhile, Sasha and Abby fled for their lives as Victor tore apart Eastside General Hospital trying to find them. Abby was injured in the escape, and the pain caused her unborn child, Darla, to awaken. Confused and terrified, the telepathic fetus sent out a psychic scream that revealed their location to Victor. With nowhere left to run, Sasha took Abby to a high-security storage room where the Psy Collective kept its stockpiles of performance-enhancing drugs. In desperation, Sasha injected herself with Mad John, a synthetic neurotransmitter that would boost her control over her powers, at the cost of slowly poisoning her. Sasha would have less than 20 minutes to defeat Victor and inject the antagonist. Any longer and she would fall into a coma and die. Sasha and Abby united their minds in a gestalt, hoping that their combined power would be enough to find a hole in Victor's defenses before he kills them. And here's episode 40 of Metamore City Making the Cut. Chapter 30 A familiar buzzing sensation filled Sasha and Abby's unified group mind, coming down from the floor above and growing louder as it approached. Thirty seconds later, the security door on the storeroom began to shake. Sasha Abby moved both of her bodies into the back corner of the room, well out of the line of sight. Her Abby body moved slowly with its injured foot, so she moved her Sasha body to assist it. At the same time, she reached out and began probing around that buzzing jumble of mental static, looking for pattern and structure in the apparent chaos. The Mad John was still singing in the nervous system of her Sasha body, slowly poisoning her even as it expanded her perceptions and amplified her psychic control. She made full use of it now, channeling more of her shared consciousness through that body as she struggled to understand what was going on in Victor's head. The man's rage was obvious, driving him at a level deeper than conscious thought, but that wasn't going to be any help in shutting down his PK powers. Sasha Abbey needed to get into his cerebral cortex somehow. She started looking for a door. The security door groaned as an unseen force pried at its hinges. Sasha Abbey ignored it. Victor's thoughts were spilling out all over the place. He wasn't even trying to shield himself anymore. But they were all just fragments, pieces of unfinished ideas. Where are the rest of them? A quick inventory of the thoughts she could sense confirmed that they weren't just jumbled. 
a lot of the pieces were actually missing. With the Mad John giving her an unprecedented capacity for multitasking, Sasha Abbey laid out all the pieces of Victor's thoughts in a matrix, ordering them chronologically and by similar themes. The missing thought fragments now resembled a regular series of holes against the backdrop of Victor's consciousness. Sasha Abbey recalled mathematics that one or the other of them had learned at some point, and almost instantly she came up with an equation that described the pattern. It was more than consistent. It was perfectly mathematically predictable. No human mind could fragment itself into a pattern like that. Not without help, anyway. The door groaned again, then shrieked as the hinges finally gave way. It fell out into the hallway with a heavy boom. A moment later, heavy footsteps crossed over the fallen door and into the storeroom. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Victor's voice was chillingly calm compared with the rage that burned inside him. Sasha Abbey stayed out of sight behind the set of long shelves, all of which were much heavier than the door and securely bolted down. She reached out for Victor's senses, looking for the link between his head and the outside world. There. In the occipital lobe. Victor's vision, at least, was an unscrambled signal. She saw him scanning the room, moving one cautious step at a time, the faint shimmer of his PK shield around him. She followed the signal further in, toward the parietal lobe, and the raw visual input was joined by a sense of Victor's own body awareness, the movement of his limbs, the heat that flushed his skin. From there, she tried to pass into the frontal lobe, where the sensory data joined with conscious thought and the will to action. And there she ran up against that frustrating pattern of fragments again. Her Abbey half had a sudden insight. I'm using the wrong power. She added her ESP to the mix, and a picture of the inside of Victor's head revealed itself. A silvery network of tiny wires and transistors, weaving amongst the neurons and glial cells, interfacing with synapses and splitting the signals between organic and cybernetic components. And all along that network, like tiny insects swarming through a nest, a host of nanomachines worked non-stop, maintaining the incredibly complex circuitry. Sasha Abbey was impressed, and horrified. This was the secret weapon that the vampires had been working on. Not an anti-teep virus, but a cybertech scrambler to block telepathic intrusion. The vamps themselves didn't have anything to worry about. Their minds couldn't be read anyway but a tool like this would give their human ghouls nearly the same level of protection. If they got these things into the heads of all their minions, the Collective would have a hard time learning about their plans fast enough to counter them. And now Victor was turning that power against his own people, the traitorous bastard. All of these insights took only a matter of seconds. Unfortunately, seconds were all Sasha Abbey had. As she took her hard-won knowledge and tried to apply it, Looking for a way to shut down or bypass the neural network, Victor appeared around the last set of shelves. There you are, honey. Victor bared his teeth at Abby's body in an expression that couldn't even remotely be called a smile. I've been looking all over for you. Sasha Abby trained her gun on Victor, more out of reflex than anything else. He hardly seemed to notice. I'm not going back with you, Victor. She said it through Abby's mouth, not wanting to give away their plan to Victor. Even as she spoke, she continued prying at his mind, looking for the connections where the nanopixie's influence ended. What could she do to him that might still get through? Oh, I know you're not, Victor said, that ugly not-a-smile splitting his face again. I wouldn't take you back anyway, you backstabbing little whore. But no, see, you have something that belongs to me. A knife dropped into his hand from a hidden sheath under his leather coat. I'm just here to take it back. Sasha Abbey covered her pregnant belly in a protective gesture. She moved her Sasha body squarely in front of Abbey, pointing the barrel straight at Victor's heart. You're not taking anything. She said it with Sasha's voice this time. Inside his head, she found a vulnerable spot. Victor's own telepathic abilities still functioned, and while his half-cybernetic consciousness kept her from manipulating him or stunning him with a psychic blast, he could still feel people's emotions. 
She took all of her fear, her pain, and her terror, amplified the signal through her combined powers, and channeled them straight into the telepathic receptors of his brain. Victor reeled, his mouth open in a silent scream, as he stumbled back away from them. Sasha aimed and fired, three shots in quick succession. Victor raised a PK shield, but it was weak and not fully formed. The shots only deflected instead of stopping cold. One of them struck him in the left arm, while a second grazed his shoulder. The third caromed off and hit one of the shelves, smashing a line of bottles. He grunted in pain and dropped the knife he'd been holding. At the same time, Sasha Abbey felt his walls go up, shutting off his telepathy. And with it, the gap in his defenses. Bitch! He growled, reaching out with his telekinesis. Sasha Abbey felt the pull of the gun on her hand and hit the clip eject button before it was torn from her grasp. Victor tossed the weapon aside. I don't need a weapon to kill you. Sasha's body reached for her backup revolver, but was stopped by a sudden force pulling back on her neck. Through Abby's eyes, she saw Sasha's U-tree crucifix constricting around her like a garrote, cutting off her oxygen as the same invisible force pinned her to the wall. Sasha Abby moved her other body forward, clutching at Victor to try to make him stop, but he snarled and shoved her backward. She landed hard against the shelves and fell to the floor, the wind knocked out of her. Sasha Abbey felt herself losing contact with Sasha's body, as the lack of oxygen and the ongoing toxic effects of the Mad John reinforced one another. She made one desperate final push with her combined psychic powers, trying to batter down Victor's shields with the raw force of their psychic pain. Victor flinched under the assault, and his grip faltered for an instant, but it was too little, too late. Sasha Abbey had nothing else to follow up with, no weapons at hand to exploit the opportunity. Sasha's body went limp, and Victor tossed it contemptuously aside. Sasha's consciousness was still fused with Abby's, but their group mind immediately felt the loss of power and the accompanying loss of the hyper-awareness that the Mad John had given them. The part of her that had been Sasha felt a tugging inside her, as if she were being pulled apart. An indefinable something left her then, slipping out of her grasp as it moved beyond even the realm of psychic perception. The part that was left had to deal with the knife that Victor plunged straight into Abby's belly. Pain like nothing either woman had ever experienced tore through their shared body. The knife dragged against her flesh, and Sasha Abby realized that Victor, in his madness, was trying to cut Darla out of her. She curled up and grabbed the knife with both hands, desperately trying to protect Darla, but Victor struck her in the face with a telekinetic blow that sent her sprawling. Oh no, you don't! Victor raged, pulling back the knife to his hand and sending it into her with another telekinetic thrust. I'm taking back what's mine, bitch! You can't have it! Victor's second knife thrust came in too low. Darla woke up as the blade passed through her mother's womb and buried itself in her infant body. Her psychic scream tore through Sasha Abbey's mind and Victor's alike. The man fell to his knees. His moan of agony turned into a howl of rage as he pulled the knife out and sent it flying into Abby's gut once more. This one buried itself to the hilt in the center of her womb. He had apparently given up on taking back his child and was simply trying to make the screams stop. Darla twitched one last time and went still. The silence that followed was deafening. Sasha Abbey lay helpless, bleeding out, as Victor stumbled to his feet and staggered out of the room, clutching his wounded arm. She could hear the psychic voices of other telepaths converging on the area from the floors above, sending earnest promises that help was on the way. Too late, she thought, overwhelmed with grief and loss. It's already too late. Mercifully, then, the darkness took her. Fiona watched with a numb detachment as Daniel pulled Sasha's skimmer into the parking garage below the nest. He set it down in a spot close to one of the lifts to minimize the chance of exposure. Brian closed his eyes briefly, then nodded. No one's around. Small mercies. 
He gestured at Miriam's body, lying on the back seat with her head on Fiona's lap. I'll help Fee take her upstairs. Call Sasha and let her know what happened, Bry. Since the trap for Victor was a fake, we've got to assume that he found out where Abby's really being kept, and he's on his way there. Will do. I'll see if Becca can get a fix on his location for us. Daniel opened the door for Fiona and helped her to lift Miriam out. The security cameras would show them moving the body, but the building was hive-owned, so Fiona wasn't concerned. Besides, Brian could always edit the footage later. Brian got out of the lift at the floor for the nest, but Daniel and Fiona continued upwards for another 30 stories, coming out at the common area where Fiona and Miriam had shared a certain conversation six months before. A gust of winter wind blew over them as they opened the doors to the snow-covered terrace. Some detached part of Fiona's mind noted that the lush greenery that had filled the place in summer was now withered and dead. Somehow, that felt appropriate. Daniel glanced at her in an unspoken question. Fiona nodded to the broad ledge that sat at chest height between the terrace and the open air of the city. They laid Miriam down on top of the slab of concrete, and Daniel arranged her arms so that her hands were crossed over her waist. He stepped back, lowered his head, and made a small invoking gesture. Eli, grant her peace. Fiona brushed a few locks of Miriam's hair out of her face. She worshipped the great maker, actually. Her voice sounded small and fragile, even in her own ears. For some reason, that didn't bother her as much as it might have once. Oh. Daniel gave her a weak smile. In that case, may the mother of all welcome her in her everlasting embrace. Or, um, however they say it. He paused, his bright blue eyes studying her closely. Would you, um, like some time alone with her? Fiona nodded once. Daniel nodded back and turned to go. Daniel. He stopped and looked back, questioningly. Fiona closed her eyes and swallowed once. Thank you for saving my life. She looked down at Miriam, then back at him. And you were right. We did need you. He didn't smile, but she saw in his eyes and in his aura how much that meant to him. You're welcome. He turned again and left her alone. Or not quite alone. I always liked him. Miriam's telepathic voice was soft but clear in Fiona's mind. He has a good heart. Fiona let herself smile a bit at that. It was never his heart that I questioned. Oh, come, child. You must have trusted his brain as well for you to take the chance that you did. Fiona looked down at the elder's unmoving form. What do you mean? Miriam's tone was gentle. Fiona, dear. You could have kept up our little dance for a good while longer. You chose to let me catch you in that spot so that Daniel could have a chance to attack me while I was feeding. Fiona shifted uneasily. A tactical decision, she said, with a casualness she didn't feel. It was the only way we could have won. Yes, exactly. And do you think you could have made that decision six months ago? Fiona opened her mouth then closed it again. You let yourself become helpless to save the lives of the people you cared for. I am immensely proud of you, my dear. Tears came to Fiona's eyes, but she didn't brush them away. She bent over Miriam's body and pressed her face against one cold, ashen cheek. I'm... I'm sorry I couldn't save you. She said, her voice catching on a sob. Hush, child. You've done all I could have hoped for, and I knew the risks when I challenged Arvalos. You owe me nothing. You're wrong, Fiona said fervently, taking Miriam's still hand in her own. I owe you everything. They sat there in silence for some time, their spirits communing wordlessly through the psychic link. At last, Miriam spoke again. How long until sunrise? Fiona consulted her watch. About six hours. After a pause, she added, The terrace has southern exposure. You should have direct sunlight by ten o'clock at the latest. The forecast is for clear skies. 
Very good. I'll be glad to see the sun again, if only briefly. Miriam seemed to hesitate before speaking again. Fiona, I wonder if you might be willing to attend to a few details after my passing. Of course. What would you ask of me? In my service to Malcolm, I took a number of, well, thralls is the term he prefers. Some of them are telepaths. I don't want the syndicate to keep control of them after I'm gone. I did my best to care for them well, but others in the hierarchy would not be so conscientious. We'll get them out. Where can I find them? At the private apartment reserved for me as elder. I left instructions for my seneschal to take them there, in case I succeeded in failing in my mission. The ironic note in her voice was obvious, but she quickly turned serious again. Her name is Seralina Greyhaven. She would tell you that I saved her from a fate worse than death, though I fear the woman I saved is not quite the same woman who was lost. She may hate you for destroying me, but be kind to her for my sake. She is very precious to me. Fiona sensed the odd mix of feelings behind Miriam's words. Love, pride, guilt. She nodded once. I promise. Before either of them could say anything further, Fiona's enhanced hearing picked up the sound of someone running down the hall behind her. She turned to look just as the door to the terrace flew open. Daniel stood there, his face a mask of anguish, tears streaming down his face. Fiona, you... Fiona, you've got to come down. Victor, he... Hospital. Sasha. Oh, Eli... Fiona's heart felt like something had wrapped it in its claws and started to squeeze. She looked at Daniel, then down at Miriam. Go, child. The sun will do its work without you. She didn't even wait for Daniel. After brushing past him in a blur of motion, she took the stairs free-running style, leaping from the railing of one flight down to the next with feline agility. She reached the door of the apartment just as Brian and Rebecca were rushing out of it. Brian's voice was as choked as Daniel's. Something's happened. Eastside General Hospital. Intensive care unit. Abby Preston lay in her bed in the ICU, the soft rhythm of a heart monitor beeping in the background. The blankets hid most of the bandages from view, but what Daniel could see was bad enough. Besides the EKG, they had her hooked up to a ventilator, a pulse oximeter, an automated blood pressure cuff, and half a dozen IV pumps. Daniel had seen people in worse shape, but not often. We got her to the surgeons as fast as we could, Morgan said, sounding almost as if she blamed herself for what had happened. But it took an hour to fix what that psychopath did to the power conduit. And he hurt a lot of our staff while he was hunting her down. We were down to backcountry medicine for a while there. She shook her head. They say she'll make it, but... Well, there's going to be a lot of uterine scarring. I'm sorry. Daniel nodded heavily. So Abby Preston, the collective's great prodigy, was going to be unable to bear any children for them. The irony was almost unbearably cruel. And speaking of unbearable cruelties... He looked into the adjoining room, where Sasha's family was gathered at her bedside. Fiona was on her knees, clutching her lover's hand and weeping openly. Rebecca cradled the infant Lila in her arms on the opposite side of the bed, and Brian wrapped his arms around them both, giving Fiona her space. His eyes caught Daniel's, and the bleakness in his expression made Daniel's gut clench inside him. No chance for Sasha, then? He asked Morgan. The Monday woman shook her head. The ligature marks suggest that he strangled her until she passed out. Her voice was hoarse with shared grief. The mad John she injected herself with did the rest. We could keep her body going indefinitely, but her cerebral cortex is just... fried. She hesitated. Daniel, Sasha was a registered donor, and there's a teenage girl upstairs who badly needs a liver transplant. We're just waiting for her family to give consent. She took a deep breath, then added in a thick voice, 
I feel like such a fucking vulture for saying that. Damn it, she was my friend too. Daniel wiped the tears out of his eyes and put a hand on her shoulder. It's okay, Morgan. You're just doing your job. Sasha would have wanted you to. Damned right I would. Daniel froze. Over at Abby's bed, the rhythm of the heart monitor sped up slightly. The gentle whoosh of the ventilator seemed almost deafening. Did you hear that? Yeah, yeah. Morgan sniffed, wiping her eyes. Sasha would have wanted it. Just doing my job doesn't make it feel any better, you know? No, no, I know. Daniel stepped away from her and turned in a slow circle. I just thought I heard... Daniel? Hey, Daniel, over here. Daniel turned in the direction of Abby's bed. The telepathic signal was faint, but it was also unmistakably familiar. What in the hells? Come on, pretty boy, figure it out. Damn it, if anybody should be able to, it's you. Inside Daniel's head, Danny gave a cry of alarm. Oh, holy hell, it's Daniel, it's her, it's Sasha. Daniel rushed over to Abby's side, then gently took her hand. Immediately, the telepathic voice grew clearer. Hey there, big guy. Sasha flashed him the telepathic equivalent of a grin. Daniel grinned right back at her. Brian, Fee, Bex, get in here fast. Telling the full tale didn't take quite as long as Daniel might have expected. Over the next hour, he, Sasha, and the others compared notes on what had happened with Victor, Abby, and Miriam. In the process, he found himself unloading the whole story of how Victor had suckered him into taking part in the ill-fated smuggling operation that had cost Dell and Trace their lives. It was strange. He'd thought that he would never be able to tell anyone in the Collective about the terrible choices he had made, but the trials they had just endured together made it easier somehow. Certainly Brian and the others would never question his loyalty, now that he had risked his life to save Fiona. His own conscience still ached, though. I just wish I'd said something earlier. We might have avoided some of this if I'd been honest with you guys. We've all been keeping secrets, Brian said sourly. That's the problem with the whole collective. Too many damned secrets. Well, that and the paranoia. And that? Daniel looked around at them, then down at Abby's unconscious form. Sasha, is Abby still in there with you? She's here, but she's sleeping right now. Our gestalt got unraveled a bit when we lost consciousness. I think the only reason I'm awake is because I have this astral projection thing going on. She paused. Guys, I've got to be honest here. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to hold myself together after she wakes up. I lost part of myself when my body... Well, when my brain died anyway. I think Abby got a good-sized piece of my soul but I don't know if it's enough for me to keep going as a separate personality forever. Rebecca trembled visibly. So, we're still going to lose you? No, baby, I'm not leaving. I just... I can't live like this, as some kind of ghost riding shotgun in Abby's body. I don't know how you and Danny do it, Daniel. Daniel gave her a half-smile. It isn't easy, believe me. I can tell. And I can't even shapeshift to get some time in a familiar body. She sent Rebecca a telepathic hug. When Abby wakes up, I'm going to start integrating with her. We made a good gestalt, and I wouldn't mind staying that way. I think Abby feels that way, too. I can give her something she hasn't had since she was a kid. A family and a place of belonging. She paused, a trace of uncertainty appearing in her thoughts. Assuming you still want me like this... Fiona squeezed Abby's hand, then sent a mental image around to all of them, herself as a young girl, orphaned through violence just as Abby had been. Daniel hadn't seen the image before, and he was startled by the woman's sudden display of honesty. How could we turn either of you away? Fee's right. We're a family, and nothing's gonna change that. Daniel smiled, thinking back to their graduation day five years ago. Not nobody not know how. Memories stirred in the link as they each remembered that gestalt that they had made the day that their lives changed forever. Inevitably, thoughts turned to their two lost companions, Dell and Trace, and to the man responsible for all this misery. 
Victor's going down. Today, I'm not letting that bastard disappear into the woodwork. Not again. But how? He's stronger than any of us. He trained us. And now he's immune to telepathy. I've got an idea about that. Let me show you what we saw when we looked in his head. Images flickered through the link at high speed. Once they realized what they were looking at, the plan fell into place quickly, though there were some reservations. I dislike being left behind, Fiona said, though there was more regret than heat in the words. I know, but you stand the best chance of stopping him if he decides to come back and finish off Abby and Sasha. Daniel and I can handle this. How are you going to get him to go where you want him? Leave that to me. If I know Victor, he's going to be looking for a way to get out of the Hive's crosshairs. And I know just who he'll trust to find it for him. Victor glowered up at the parking garage entrance, his instincts prickling uneasily. Something felt off. Granted, he was probably just off balance because he had his telepathy shut down. After a lifetime of depending on his psi senses, keeping the walls up felt like walking around with his eyes closed. He could do it when he had to, but it always made him twitchy. And all the more so since Sasha King had shown him that he could still be hurt through his psi senses, even with the vamp's neural network in his head. Stupid bitch. King had been a good support operative, but she'd never had what it took to be a frontline combatant. Now she'd gotten herself killed playing hero in a fatal outburst of hive loyalty. She never should have interfered. He flexed his arm and winced a little. It still throbbed where the bitch had shot him, even after the back alley healer was done with it. Victor was sure the guy had screwed up something in there, but he couldn't afford to be picky. He was on a tight deadline, assuming that his contact showed. Victor pulled out his new phone, freshly purchased from a first-level kiosk vendor, then dialed the number from memory. The familiar voice answered on the second ring. Hello again, Victor, Evan said pleasantly. Everything work out with your little emergency job transfer? We're about to find out, Victor growled. Evan, are you sure about this guy? I appreciate discretion as much as the next man, but I haven't seen so much as a security guard in the last half a click. You could do a mass execution here, and I don't think anyone would notice. That is the general idea, Victor, Evan said, his voice mild. I'm not sure how they did it in the collective, but as a rule, smugglers prefer staying out of the public eye. With the office complex under renovation, that garage is about as out of the way as you're going to get. Unless you prefer to work with the traffickers on street level, of course. Victor's lip curled in irritation, but he bit back a retort. Evan was the last ally he had left who had the contacts to get him out of this mess. It wouldn't do to waste that resource in a moment of frustrated anger. Yes, you've done enough of that already, haven't you? He'd gone into the dark place while he was chasing Abby. He hadn't meant to. He'd tried to be careful and reasonable, to plan the whole thing out, just like any other mission. And he'd done a damned good job of it, too. He'd had the whole hospital staff dancing like puppets until Sasha King showed up and saw through his tactics. When he realized Abby had slipped out of his trap, and that last squad of security guards launched their ridiculous charge against him, well, he had to admit it. His control slipped. It was so much easier to just go into the dark place for a while, to let that other side of himself take care of things. Except that he'd come out of it to find his child dead and her traitorous mother bleeding out on the floor. The Dark Place was effective, but it wasn't exactly discriminating. You still there, Victor? I'm not sure, but I think I can hear you fuming. You haven't answered my question. How much do you trust this guy? I trust him to get you to Augra, more or less, unharmed. Isn't that enough? More or less unharmed? Well, you know how it is with freight dogs. The ships are old, held together with duct tape and good feelings, and they fly them like hellbats. But they're some of the best pilots cash can buy. No worries, you'll make it to the rendezvous with your new employer. Victor grunted an acknowledgement of this. (laughs) All right, I meet him inside, right? Yes, indeed. The door will open for you two minutes before your meeting, and not a moment sooner. Is there anything else? 
Victor thought about it. He was still uneasy, but Evan was solid. He'd proven that well enough before. No, we're good. Thanks, Evan. Enjoy your new home, Victor. I hope you like the heat. Evan rang off. Victor tucked himself into an alcove near the garage's security door and waited for it to open. One good thing about meeting in such a remote location, there wasn't much chance that some hive member would run across him while he waited for his flight. Not that they'll ever stop looking. His gut twisted a little as he thought about that. Killing King had been a mistake, and he resented his darker half for indulging itself so foolishly. The elders probably would have left him alone if not for that. After all, Abby's treachery had been blatant, his anger at her entirely understandable. But King would be seen as an innocent bystander, and the elders would bring the full wrath of the hive down on him if they ever caught him. She may have been a meddlesome, do-gooding bitch, but she was a well-trained bitch, and the elders hated losing useful resources as much as Victor hated wasting them. That made him think of Abby again. He ground his teeth together, cursing the bad fortune that had ruined his perfect happy ending. All those years of effort, the carefully staged death of her mundane parents, the equally orchestrated rescue, the countless hours working with her in the Somnok, all of it gone. He'd been so close to getting what he wanted, a child to call his own. Now he'd have to start all over again. And since Algra was a major stronghold for the Vampire Syndicate, it wasn't likely that he'd be seeing many female telepaths for a while. That consideration alone almost made him want to stay in Metamore City, to wait out the Hive's manhunt and then start looking for new prospects. But no, this wasn't going to blow over. Best to get out of town now and worry about his posterity at a later date. Algra wasn't his first choice for a new homeland, but there was no place in the world he'd be safer, and the job offer couldn't have come at a better time. Victor silently thanked Evan for thinking of him when his soon-to-be employer called looking for a new security consultant. The security door buzzed, and Victor pulled it open and slipped inside. It locked behind him a moment later, which was a little bit more paranoid than the norm. But as Evan had pointed out, smugglers had good reason to be a little skittish. A skimmer horn beeped once, echoing in the concrete maze of the parking garage. The echoes made it hard to pinpoint where it was coming from, but Victor knew where he was supposed to go. Straight ahead up the ramp, then around the corner to the manager's office. As he came up the stairs to the second level, he could see that some of the lights were out on this floor of the garage, leaving an irregular patchwork of blue-white illumination and pools of deep shadow. He had just gone around the corner when he was struck by a sudden wave of dizziness. An instant later, his guns and knives tore themselves free from their sheaths. The weapons flew twenty meters through the air and thudded loudly against the body of a parked skimmer. A skimmer with Brian Summers strapped into the driver's seat. A trap! Victor snarled and reached out with his telekinesis, trying to snatch back his weapons. They didn't budge. He dimly remembered that magnetism got stronger the closer the object was, while his own TK worked at the same strength regardless of range. He tried to snatch at Summers with his power, but the man was bonded to the skimmer and wouldn't budge. Victor looked around for anything else to use as a weapon, but there were only a few other skimmers, nothing small enough for him to lift it. Victor gritted his teeth. Fine, he'd get in close and kill the pudgy son of a bitch with his bare hands. He charged in, watching closely in case Summers pulled a gun and he needed to dive for cover. Victor still wasn't used to fighting without his telepathy, so he had only a split second's warning before a tall, dark shape came out of the shadows and tried to blindside him. He dropped and spun to avoid the high kick the figure aimed at him, catching himself on his hands and quickly turning to block the next attack. They exchanged a flurry of blows and counterblows, lightning quick. By the time they parted, Victor didn't need to see the man's face to know who he was fighting. What the fuck, Daniel? Victor snapped, incredulous. I get your ticket out of the hive and this is what I get for it? Daniel darted in, fainted, then jumped back when Victor didn't take the bait. Right, because the glamorous life of the lone teep worked so well when you did it. Victor almost choked on a laugh. Are you fucking serious? He waved a hand briefly toward Brian. This prick stole your girl, remember? Go! 
gods, I can't believe you didn't get out when you had the chance. Daniel shrugged once. Got a better offer. Victor spotted what looked like an opening and struck, but Daniel anticipated the move and blocked it. Another quick exchange of blows passed before Victor got clear again. Th they'll make you choke on that offer before they're through. He was already breathing hard from the exertion. I, I tried to warn you. You're, you're going to be just another lapdog. Daniel's eyes went cold. Better that than a rabid mutt who needs to be put down. <laughs> and you think you're the man to do it. This is your last chance, Vic. Surrender now and we'll let the police have you. Victor reached out with his teak to show Daniel what he thought of that idea. But the younger man saw it coming and disrupted the attack with a head-on assault. As Victor blocked and parried Daniel's blows, he couldn't help admiring how much his pupil had improved. Daniel had a ferocity now that he'd lacked before, and it kept Victor off balance enough that he couldn't concentrate on using his powers. He didn't know what Daniel had been up to these last few months, but he'd obviously learned how to take a fight seriously. It was a real shame Victor was going to have to kill him. They whirled and spun across the garage floor in a deadly dance. Daniel's youth and speed matched against Victor's strength and cunning. The kid hit more often, but Victor hit harder, and one hit was all you needed if you could hit the right spot. Eventually, Victor got the opening he was looking for and scored a hit to the side of Daniel's knee. The young man grunted in pain, and Victor rode him to the floor, smashing Daniel's head against the concrete. He was about to deliver the killing blow when he felt a hand grip the base of his neck. Summers! He'd almost forgotten about the little Sparky during his fight with Daniel. Victor felt a sting of electricity against his skin, and then stars exploded in front of his eyes. He snapped a fist back into Summers' face and the man slid off him, landing on the floor. Victor spun on him and called up his teeth, intent on crushing the man's windpipe. But all that happened was a blinding surge of pain and gut-wrenching vertigo. Victor bent double and almost retched at the sensation. What? What the fuck did you do to me? Summers wiped the blood from his nose and winked, his eyes light with triumph. That's a nice piece of hardware you've got in your head, Vic. Real state-of-the-art stuff. No ferromagnetics in there, so I couldn't just rip it out of your head. But it's still circuitry. And it's tied in there nice and tight with your brain cells. Victor stared. How did Summers know about the circuitry? He hadn't told anyone, and the vamps wouldn't have said anything. See, my wife, Sasha, whom you just murdered, passed on the word to us about what you'd done to yourself. With all that wiring in your head, you're half computer now. So I just logged in. He raised a finger, baring his teeth at Victor. And that means I own you, bitch. Sudden rage boiled up in Victor's mind, burning past the stunned and disoriented synapses as he slipped toward the dark place. He grabbed Summers and slammed him bodily against the nearby skimmer, as his vision literally went red with fury. I'll kill you! I'll rip off your fucking head! I'll- Summers gestured. Victor's body froze, unable to move a muscle. He tried to choke the little man in front of him, tried to scream, tried to run, but his body would do none of it. He felt the cool metal barrel against his temple for only an instant. He never heard the shot. Brian flinched as the gun went off a meter in front of his face. Victor's body fell limp, the contents of his skull sprayed liberally across the garage floor to Brian's left. The neural circuitry made for a liberal accenting of silver among the usual shades of red, gray, and pink. Daniel lowered the pistol slowly, his arm remaining stiffly at his side. He gazed for a long moment at the body, his face expressionless. Then he glanced over at Brian. His bright blue eyes looked like they were made of glass. I'm all right, Brian assured him, getting slowly to his feet. You? Daniel nodded once. He'd taken a nasty blow to the head when Victor brought him down, but apparently his healing power had taken care of it. He wiped down the gun with careful, deliberate motions before pressing it into Victor's hand. Then he walked over to the corpse's head and lifted it under the arms. Brian took the legs by unspoken agreement, 
and together they carried it over to the nearest entrance to the garage. Brian opened the electronic door with a gesture, revealing the narrow skyway beyond. The location of the trap had been chosen carefully, not just for the garage itself, but for what lay beneath it. Two levels below lay one of the most dangerous sectors of the street, a place where the things that lived under the city were known to hunt. Daniel and Brian removed all of Victor's identification, put his knives back in their holsters, then dumped the body and the pistol over the edge of the skyway. Brian watched as the body vanished into a tiny dot, then disappeared into a snowdrift. There would be nothing recognizable left by morning, and even if he were found, the evidence would point to suicide. Brian went back inside and used their non-detection scroll to erase the evidence from the scene. The spell was Artax's work, and while Brian didn't care much for the man, he did know how to make such things accessible for the layperson. The scroll disintegrated in a cloud of glowing sparks, and Victor's blood vanished from their clothes along with it. That'll do it. He brushed off his palms. We should go before we contaminate the scene. He turned around and saw Danny standing back at the entrance, looking out over the skyway. She looked over her shoulder at him as he approached. Her eyes glistened with tears, and though she was a few centimeters taller than Brian, she looked very vulnerable and small. His arms folded around her in a gentle embrace. She rested her head on his shoulder and let the tears run silently down her cheeks. They had been back in the skimmer for nearly ten minutes before Danny spoke. It doesn't really fix anything, does it? Her voice was subdued and thoughtful. Brian shook his head. No, it doesn't. He thought of Sasha and blinked back the tears that welled up in his own eyes. But it stops it from happening again. Sometimes that's the best you can do. Danny nodded, keeping her eyes fixed on the world outside her window. I guess so. Brian reached over and took her hand. He wouldn't ask her if she and Daniel were all right. You were never all right after your first kill. Still, Danny seemed to sense the unspoken question. Daniel needs to be alone for a while. He doesn't regret what we did, but he needs some time. I understand, Brian said, and he did. Silence fell between them for a few minutes. When Danny spoke again, her voice was hesitant. I feel like what happened to Sasha was my fault. I keep thinking, if I had just told you guys who Abby was, you wouldn't have fallen for Miriam's trap, and Sasha wouldn't have been left to face Victor alone. She lowered her eyes. If you want me to leave, I'll understand. Brian rolled that around in his mind for a while, weighing his words carefully. No, he said at last. This whole thing started because we thought we had to isolate ourselves from those who weren't perfect enough to measure up. He's too broken. He's defective. He's useless. He shook his head. Maybe if we did a better job of embracing our own people, we wouldn't breed the kind of resentment and hatred that turned Victor into what he was. That was the Hive's policy, not yours. (laughs) It's the same thing. We are the Hive, all of us together. We made those decisions together, either because we thought we were right or because we were cowed into going along with it. A group can agree unanimously and still be wrong. He pushed his glasses further up on his nose, setting his jaw. If we want things to change, we have to start a new way of thinking about how we treat the have-nots in the collective. And it's going to start with us, with the summer cell. Maybe the others will agree with us and maybe they won't but I'm tired of just going along with the majority opinion to keep from rocking the boat. Danny turned and looked at him, amazed respect in her eyes. Do you think the elders will let you get away with that? Brian shrugged dismissively. I honestly don't care what they think anymore. They're supposed to be servants, not leaders. It's time they remembered that. He smiled then, taking Danny's hand again. It wasn't much of a smile, really. They had both seen too much pain and death for their hearts to be very light, but he gave it his best effort anyway. You are welcome in our family, as Danny or Daniel or whoever. She returned his weak little smile with one of her own, but he saw something soften around her eyes, 
thank you. And it probably will be as Danny most of the time, at least for a while. She turned and looked back out the window at the city below. Daniel has done some things that we'd like to leave behind. Brian nodded knowingly as he turned the skimmer onto the freeway and headed for home. Haven't we all? We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. Dearest fair listener, you are hereby cordially invited to this year's new media party at Balticon 43. Hey, Viv, I had this idea for a Balticon promo. But I'm already. Yeah, we'll have some rad guitar and jump right into announcing the costume contest. I was just announcing the contest, Chooch. Everybody is encouraged to come as their favorite patio book or webcomic character or creator. Like Malcolm Oldfellas. Well, I guess, but I was hoping for a more refined setting with refined characters like the Dark Goddess Scythe. Ishmael Horatio Wong. Or Cassius. No, no, it'll be a rockin' party with John Alpha. Roy. Or Cynical Woman. But I was really hoping to see... Arthur Trigvason! Gentlemen, adventurer! Father Thomas. And, of course... Senator Bill Shelley. Oh, I'm sure someone will come as one of those. Everybody's gonna want to be there to hear tea spin in wax. Wait a minute. T. Morris is DJing? Oh no, think of the children! That's right, Saturday night, May 23rd, come join us at the New Media Party at Balticon 43 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come as your favorite patio book or webcomic character or creators and win prizes in our costume contest. Or just come as yourself and dance the night away. Just go to endoftheblender.com for party info and, of course, balticon.org for full event details. See you there! Greetings, Mr. Lester. Nina Kimberly the Merciless here. My scribe has informed me of your defiance and your refusal to surrender your podcast audience to me. I must say that I respect and even admire your courage. If I'm honest, I would have been disappointed if you had not put up a fight. That said, do not think my respect will gain you anything in the end. Metamore City is simply too big and too powerful for me to allow you to openly defy the rule of the Ook Horde. I heard in your voice that you will not submit, and so you force me to bypass you and encourage your subjects to overthrow you. Citizens of Metamore City, I am Nina Kimberly the Merciless, commander of the Ook Horde, and I want all of you to know that your scribe does not have your best interests at heart. He is foolishly refusing to submit to my demands out of his own personal pride. You may feel a sense of loyalty to him, but what has he brought you really? Conflict, tension, fighting and bloodshed. He does not want peace for Metamore City. No, he thrives on your drama. Why can the Psy Collective and the Vampires not coexist peacefully without all these cloak-and-dagger vendettas? Because Chris Lester incites them. Why are low-powered telepaths made to feel useless by their own people? It is not their elders that made this decision, but your own leader, Chris Lester, who dictated that they should operate this way. Murders, betrayals, espionage, dark secrets, and sinister conspiracies. This is what you have to look forward to under Chris Lester's rule. The Ook Horde does not want to destroy Metamore City. I, Nina Kimberly the Merciless, want Metamore City to thrive and prosper. But Chris Lester is not willing to put the best interests of Metamore citizens above his own pride if you do not overthrow him and declare your alliance and allegiance to the Ook Horde, we will be forced to invade. This is not personal for anyone except Chris Lester. 
He may have created you, but only as his playthings for the entertainment and amusement of others. As a powerful ally to the Horde, you can become more, and you can finally exist in peace. I expect to see Chris Lester brought before me. Preferably alive, but, you know, whatever. That is all. Nina, Nina, Nina. You just don't understand the people of Metamore City at all, do you? Not that I'm really surprised, given that you're, well, hey, a barbarian. But here's how things work. We believe in a little concept called free will. We believe in a concept called self-determination. We believe in a concept called not letting the person at the top of the food chain tell us what to do just because he says we should. Or she says we should. So, when you're telling my citizens that I'm the one responsible for all of their screwed up decisions, you're really pretty much giving them the biggest possible insult you could because you're implying that they can't live their lives without me telling them what to do. Well, let me tell you something, Nina Kimberly. The people of Metamore City are living, breathing souls who make their own decisions, and then they live with them. So you can take all of your flowery language about how I'm responsible for all of the misery in Metamore, and you can shove it, because my people make their own choices and then they live with them. Kind of like they did in this week's episode. Besides, we've all heard by now that even the people over at Avadon Hill are resisting your rule. And in the words of my dear nemesis, It's a sad fracking day when I'm the guy with the most testosterone in the room. So yeah, surrender still not going to happen, Nina. Sorry, try somewhere else, like, oh, say... Scott Sigler's camp. I hear that they're looking for a new overlord. All right. Well, that was chapter 30, ladies and gents. We've got just one more chapter. Yes, that is right. The story is not over yet. Victor lies dead in a ditch somewhere. Well, dead in a snowdrift somewhere. But that's not the end of the story. What's going to happen to the rest of our characters? What's going to happen with those little loose ends that are hanging around? Well, you're going to find out in our next episode, Chapter 31. But for now, I want to give a big special thank you to all of my cast. Thanks again to T. Morris for reprising his role as Evan Salindi. Thank you to Kim the Comic Book Goddess for returning as Morgan Drowling. And thank you to Paulette Jackson for continuing to do an awesome job as Miriam Bakhtivar standing in for Martha Puskas, who is still on the mend. And as usual, thank you to all of my regular voice cast members. Christiana Ellis in particular did a kick-ass job in this episode. I am so, so pleased at that performance. But really, I can't pick favorites here. You guys did a fantastic job. You brought this book to life, and it would not be what it is without you. So, now on to an ugly bit of administration, the iTunes difficulties, and ongoing trouble with the feed in general. We now have a working feed on the website. If you go to metamorcity.com and you click on the subscribe in iTunes button there, it will subscribe you to the correct RSS feed for the show. The problem is that as of this date, they still have not removed the old feed burner RSS feed from the listing for Metamore City in the iTunes store. So people who find Metamore City that way are not going to be able to subscribe to a working feed there. They actually have to go to the website and subscribe from the links on the website. Frustrating as hell. I'm really annoyed that iTunes can't seem to get their act together and fix the URL for the RSS feed, despite numerous requests from me and from many of my listeners for them to do so. 
I don't know what's going on over at the division of Apple that handles iTunes, but Apple, for shame. I'm a loyal Macintosh user, and you guys are making us all look bad. Get this taken care of, seriously. But in the meantime, please pass the word to your fellow Metamorphs that if they want to continue to subscribe to the podcast and get new episodes delivered on their feed, they need to go to the website and subscribe there. And if you're one of our listeners who don't listen in iTunes, who use another RSS aggregator, you can click the little RSS icon on the Metamorph City website, and you will be able to subscribe with the feed catcher of your choice. One more reminder about Balticon. I am going to be there Memorial Day weekend. We're going to be doing a live Metamorph City show, if I can actually find the time to write the darn thing. Um... It's been a busy few weeks, folks, and I am fried, especially since it's now about midnight and I'm operating on six hours of sleep from a Friday night. That's just not right. So I'm going to go ahead and hang up this episode for now. Just remember, if you live anywhere near Baltimore, Maryland and can get there during Memorial Day weekend... Please be there. It is the biggest podcasting shindig in the entire country. And you're going to see all sorts of big names in podcasting there. It is going to be an absolute blast, and I cannot wait. If you can, by any means, get out there for that convention, you're not going to regret it, guys. It's going to be sweet. And you can find out more about Balticon at Balticon.org. That's Balticon.org, B-A-L-T-I-C-O-N.org. If you'd like to leave your comments about the show, you can call into our voicemail line, which is 206-203-0994. That is 206-203-0994. We've got an all-voicemail show heading your way next week. And I'm going to try to get that out by next Saturday. We'll see how that goes. In addition to the voicemail line, you can also send in your comments in text or audio to feedback at metamorecity.com. You can post your messages on the blog at metamorecity.com. You can participate in the online discussion forums at thecursed.org or in the Facebook group Fans of Metamore City. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, and on Skype, I am C.W. Lester. That'll do it for these two weeks, and I will see you guys next time for the last chapter of Making the Cut. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license, Find out more at creativecommons.org. Hi, Chris. This is Christiana doing, uh, you know, the lines. Haha. <laughs> but uh, I'm in a hurry. And so I'm managing to get them done for you. But uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, hi, Paulette, because I guess you'll probably be the one actually hearing this. Ha. Huh. OK. Anyway. Hold on tight to what? <laughs> to the zap. <laughs> up to the gantry. Yes. So, okay. yeah. Vamps are coming up the other side. Bad. Yes. Bad. You wouldn't have to be a priest, would you? Oi! Trying to save the world here! I can see it, but you're covering the microphony. That's kind of deliberate. Ah, gotcha. Even Shout way. into the pillow.
Fiona! Yes, we hope it doesn't sound like a pillow. Zioni pillow talk Fiona. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when we're at home. Not right. in battle. Usually <laughs> just after them, though. <laughs> and we staked Miriam? We staked Miriam. What did we do that? I mean, I know she's... You, didn't, you haven't read this part, have you? I thought you got through... Your powers have increased. <laughs> or he's just getting better at using them. I can't leave here here. Not like this. Oh, for crying out loud. My day has not been going as smoothly as I had hoped. So what if Victor left one of those cards still alive? It's a nice little moment. Very nice. Nicely done, bro. Nicely done. All right, and now, chapter 31. Evan helps set the trap for Victor. And now he's immune to telepathy. To the, 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 the. Parking lot. He scans to see if anyone is in the area. Holy hell, it's Daniel. It's her. It's Shasha. It's Shasha. It's Shasha. I thought I could do it better, but I didn't. Fuck that up, didn't I? Okay, Becca can. Did I know? You said beckon. Beckon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's going to beckon him there, and he's... This part makes me cry. Damn it, Chris. Every time I read this section of the story, I bawl my freaking eyes out. Uh, amplified boost of her pain and fear and terror. Neat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, being... I guess this is the one time that angst comes in handy. Exactly. <laughs> to telepathy. To telepathy. To telepathy. <sighs> Computer. <laughs> Come on, computer, stop blowing the fans. <sighs> this is actually a fairly stressful day for me, so hopefully the stress will actually like work out and make the lines more emotional and all that or something. <sighs> and then the trap. The Von trap? And he hurt a lot of our staff when he was hunting. Evil, evil, evil words. They look like normal words, but they're not normal words. They're evil. Okay. Okay. Might want to re-record the last half of that line. Yep. Sigh. I feel like... What happened? Feel like what? (sighs) I can't take you anywhere. (laughs) And because of soft kitty bumping that might be audible. And Precious, get off of the Korg. <laughs> Come on, girl. Get away. Noise, 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 noise. And now he's immune to telepathy. Ta-telepathy. 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 Well, Rebecca's kind of got that slurring together thing going, right? Okay. Brian uses the non-detection scroll. The spell was Artax's work, and while Brian didn't care much for the man, he did know how to make such things accessible to the layperson. Did you put that in for me? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how many people are going to get that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have to stop laughing for a moment. 